As you're being seated, let me ask you to think about this uh, single question here. Have you ever made a mistake in your life? Have you ever made a mistake? Now, in spite of my claims, and it's a joke to be perfect, I am not perfect. And I have made a few mistakes in my life. All right, more than a few. But so have you. And the question really isn't, have we made mistakes? But have we made a mistake that is so catastrophic that it not only affected your life personally, but it affected the life of your family, it affected your children, and it affected your grandchildren? Have you made a mistake of that magnitude? If you look up in the Webster's Dictionary, you'll see that a mistake is something that happens when there is poor judgment. And a result of poor judgment, then we take an action based upon that poor judgment, and the end result is catastrophic. There are consequential results that then begin to flow because of the poor judgment that led to the poor actions that lead to consequences That's what we call a mistake. In Genesis chapter 10, we learn of a man who made a tragic mistake that not only impacted his life, it impacted his children, it impacted his grandchildren. In case you don't remember, when we studied the Noah just a couple of weeks ago, I think, well, it was yesterday, last Sunday, not yesterday, it was last Sunday. Seems like yesterday. There are three children that Noah had who boarded the ark with him. Of those three sons, one is named Ham. Ham being one of the sons. And if you read chapter 10 of the book of Genesis, you see the lineage of the three sons of Noah, and one of those sons is Ham. And at the conclusion of chapter as we see this unfolding of his genealogy, we learn that him made a tragic mistake. We learn according to the scriptures in the previous chapters before chapter 11, which is basically our central chapter for today, that Noah was a man of the earth or the soil. He was a farmer. And as soon as he began to then settle after the flood, He began to farm, and he made then a vineyard. And from that vineyard, he made some wine. Obviously, he wasn't Baptist. And he drank too much of that wine and became intoxicated. He passed out. And when he passed out, he was physically exposed, meaning he was naked, or naked, however you want to call it. And Ham comes in and sees his father's nakedness and disgraces his father. He dishonors his father. He shames his father. But he told the other two brothers what he had seen. The other two brothers come and they back up to their father and cover his nakedness. Rather than disgracing and shaming their father in his name. Because of that, when Noah comes to, he then 
relieves or, or, or he then reveals the consequences because of him's disrespect and dishonor of his father. Poor choice. The consequence is going to be that his son and his son's descendants will become the servants of the other brothers and their descendants. Now, I'm convinced that something happened to him at that point in time in which he walked away a little bit somewhat bitter, not only toward his father, but more than likely toward God himself. There's something in the character of him that sort of spills over in the genealogy of him recorded in chapter 10 because we learn that him fathers Egypt and the Canaanites and becomes also the ones where the lineage begins Babylon. And if you read and beyond chapter 11, you learn that these three, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Canaanites become enemies of Israel, the people of God. Through that lineage come the enemies of the people, of the followers of Jehovah. Now that tells me something. That means there was something in the father, him, who fathered children, who fathered grandchildren, who fathered great-grandchildren that became rebellious and disobedient toward God. God graphically describes for us one particular grandson of him. It describes that him had a son named Cush. I'm not sure why you would ever name a son named Cush. I can imagine in, 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 in elementary school there were all kinds of jokes that were, you know, punned at this guy because his name is Cush. We don't need to go there. But Cush fathers a guy named Nimrod. Yeah, my dad cursed me with Cush, so I'm going to curse my son with Nimrod. Figure that. But the name Nimrod means rebellious. Nimrod was a rebel against God. And it is in Genesis chapter 10 where there's somewhat of a break in the genealogy of him. And God deliberately, intentionally gives us some insight into one of the great-grandchildren of Noah. Nimrod. And it's in this story that we learn some very valuable lessons from his mistakes and the mistakes of the people that he conquered and who followed his leadership. I don't know if you've ever read, read, read I don't know if you ever have read, that's proper grammar. I need a, a, one of those spell checks or a do-over or a, a Siri to say, you know, that's not how it's said. But anyway, we, we learn from these people five life lessons from Nimrod's mistakes and the people that he conquered. So in a bibliography, we often learn as we read these bibliographies some lessons that we can implement in our lives, some positive things that if we emulate these things, then the positive outcomes hopefully will happen in our lives that happen in their life. But in this bibliography, it would be somewhat a bibliography that would not be lessons that are lessons of success, but they are lessons of failure. And there are times in which it, it, it is important, I think, for us to read from a perspective of looking at someone's life and recognizing that they, because of their mistake, received certain consequences that 
that we want to avoid. In other words, if we make these decisions, if we follow this course of action, if we make this mistake, then these are the consequences that result in our lives. So let's take a look at five lessons that we learn from others' mistakes. So what are the five lessons? Take a quick, if you would, of your outline, and let's fill in the blank. Number one, I can learn from a flippant leader. Flippant has two Ps, by the way, in case you don't have a spell check. A flippant leader. He is, he is a flippant leader. He cares absolutely nothing about God. He is completely flippant about the faith of his father, Cush. If he had any faith at all, or even the, the faith of his grandfather, our great-grandfather, totally disregards the faith that was passed down through his generation. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 10 and learn from this flippant leader. Beginning with verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Echad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth Ir, Calah, and Risen between Nineveh and Kayla, that is the great city. Is that where you got your name, Kayla? Where's Kayla? I know she's here somewhere. Is this the right spelling of your name? Just so everybody will know. Why did your parents name you Kayla anyway? We're not going to go there. So let's look at the leader, Nimrod. Noah is dead. And now we see in the lineage of him describe a man named Nimrod. Now, God doesn't accidentally, coincidentally describe this man because he wants us to learn from this man's mistakes. And Nimrod is graphically detailed, described for us exactly who he was. First of all, he is a descendant of Noah. He wants us to know, God wants us to know, that he comes from the lineage of Noah. Remember, him was was a part of making the ark. He spent years of his life making the ark. He spent 30, 360 days on the ark. Ham landed on Ararat, the mountain, when God delivered them. He was with Noah when God spoke to him and blessed him and made a covenant with him in that worship setting. He heard of the commandments of God not to take a life because God values life because man is made in the image of God. And so then him begins to settle, and as a result of that, he fathers a son named Cush, who more than likely he passed on at least some of that information, and then Cush fathers a son called Nimrod. Now, somewhere in that, that, that generational thing there, the faith doesn't get passed on. If it did, he has no regard for it whatsoever in his life. Completely disconnects himself from the faith of Noah and his father and decides to rebel against God. And the rebellion is recorded in the first part of what we read in verse 8 in that not only was a descendant of Noah, but he was defined by his ambition. He was the first to be a, a king. He was the first to conquer people and establish his own kingdom. He was the first, historically, to conquer his own people and establish his own kingdom. But notice in verse 9, he's a deadly warrior. 
He is known by a, as a man who is a hunter. Now, he's not being known because he's a hunter of animals. He is known because he is a hunter of men. He is skilled in the art of warfare. And he is so skilled in the strategy of warfare that he is able to conquer other tribes so much so that he makes the nation one and he becomes the king of the nation. And he does so through the art of murder for he kills for personal gain. Do I need to go there today? He kills for personal gain. What is Planned Parenthood doing? Killing for personal gain. That's what abortion is. Killing for personal advancement and profit and leisure. And here we have a man who is killing. He is an expert at finding a tribe's weakness for engaging battle against them and from slaughtering so many of the people that they submit to his tyranny out of fear that they will be next to be murdered. He leads by fear and intimidation. And as a result of that, you see that he seeks fame because he becomes famous. It's not that he is a warrior unto the Lord. He is a warrior against the Lord, not for the Lord, but against the Lord. Because God has told Noah and the three brothers, him, that murder is, is, is contradictory to the will of God because man was created in the image of God and therefore to murder a man, you are actually defying God and God takes murder seriously. And Nimrod has no regard for God or God's word or, or fear from the Lord. But notice also in the text, he's a diabolical tyrant because in his kingdom, he is a tyrant of all tyrants. And you look at the text in verse 10, 11, and 12, you see that he conquers his own people and he constructs this kingdom by building these mega cities. And he is skillful and successful in the art of doing so. And you would have thought if Nimrod were to write a book that there would be many that would be wanting to read it because, you know, look at him and look how successful he is. But the success that he's enjoying is all because of defiance and his rebellion against God. And his success is only for a short season because God eventually will come and destroy the kingdom that he's built out of defiance and rebellion toward God. And so we learn from this flippant leader that we need to really have a submissive heart to God rather than a rebellious heart because in the submissive heart we learn that we not only gain the blessings of God but we build upon a platform that receives the blessings of God and then eventually will result in his promises. We learn not only from a flippant leader but we learn from a faithless people. We learn from a faithless people. In verse 11, I mean, chapter 11, verse 1, we see now the whole earth and the, had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now the land, many believe, some of the scholars are in debate about this, but they believe that, the, that uh, since the flood now, about 100 years have passed, give or take a few, 100 years. Noah is dead, and they believe that the population, more than likely on the earth, is somewhere close to 30,000 people. 
About the size of Rose Hill where I live. No, just kidding. About 30,000. And we see in this text, in chapter 11, verse 1, beginning to describe the people of God during, I, it, it's either during the rulership of Nimrod or, or, just, or just before the rulership of, of Nimrod, but the people are as one people. They are united. And you would think that unity would be a good thing, but here unity is a bad thing. And you see, as God describes the unity, that they speak one language. Have you ever been to a foreign country? And tried to speak English when no one there spoke English? How frustrating is that? Don't you wish the whole world spoke English and it was a world language and we didn't have any problem going anywhere else? It'd be great. But what if the world were Spanish and we'd have to learn a new language? It would be different. But here they all had one language. And so they were able to, to, to engage in life on a day-to-day -day basis, to trade and to build and to interact and to relate because they all had one language. They sought a place together. They were moving east. They were moving from the west, but they were moving from Mount Ararat to the east. And notice as they were traveling as one, they found a place to stop, and that place is called Shinar. And together they agreed that this would be a good place to stop because not only is the land flat, but it's fertile. Now, flat land is important because it's good for farming. But not only is it flat, but it's very fertile soil. It's very productive soil. And some people believe that this is somewhere near the region today we would call Iraq or Iran. They settle there. And they settle as one people. Now, why are they faithless? They are faithless because of what God said to Noah and to the three brothers after the flood. He said to multiply, replenish, and to scatter. He told the people to scatter, not to stay together but to scatter out, to scatter abroad. And they disobeyed God, and they came together, and they stuck together, and they stayed together, and that staying together was actually in defiance. It was in disobedience to God. They failed to obey God as a people. Now, you would think that there would be at least one like Noah in Noah's day who would say, no, 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 this isn't right. But there's not a single person here that we have recorded for us who stands up against the crowd. And so as a result of that, the people as one are moving together as one away from the will and the ways of God, rather with or toward the ways and the will of God. And what we learn by this example is this, that even though our culture and our community come together and say, this is the way, we must say, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. And you may stick out like a sore thumb wherever you go to school or wherever you work or wherever you live because the culture that we're living in is gradually seeking to mold us into a certain image, a certain lifestyle, a certain socioeconomic and, and all of those things trying to move us together. And we as Christ followers are going to have to say, uh-uh-uh, you may all move there, but we are me and my family, we will not. 
And it'll cause some tension in your life. I guarantee it. And cause some conflict. And it may even cause conflict in your family. And so we learn from a faithless people that we need to stand out among the crowd and, and reject the pressure of conforming to a culture that would want us to deny and to disobey God and say, no, as for me and my house, I will follow the Lord. Not only do we learn from a flippant leader and a faithless people, but also from a foolish effort. Number three, a foolish effort. We see in verse 3 and verse 4 that uh, there are some plans that they have while they are settling in Shinar. And those plans are recorded for us in verse 3. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Notice their foolish effort in seeking to build a city and to build a tower. Now, if you take a look at the text, and they said to one another, they are crafting a vision that is outside of the vision that God had for their lives when he told them to scatter. And the vision is that we want to build a city and we want to build a tower. We want to build a city so that we can keep ourselves from being dispersed. A city that is so magnanimous and so beautiful and so huge that, that we will actually create a name for ourselves. And so they then commit then to doing whatever is necessary to lay you know, to gather the materials and to ga gather the manpower and to, to gather all the things to make that happen. And so they make bricks and they get all the materials together. And then there is a cry or there is a call for the people to come together to build this city. And they construct a city and they construct a tower. But in God's reference or in God's estimation, what do they build? They build a secular city. It's a secular city because unlike Jerusalem, it's not a city that was dedicated and built unto the Lord. It was dedicated and built unto man for the glory of man, not for the glory of God. They didn't build it for God. They built it for themselves. Not only was it a secular city, but it was a satanic religion that they built. For they built a tower up into the heavens they built this edifice. I'm not sure exactly where it was. There's somewhat debate about that. But I can imagine that they placed this tower very strategically in the center of the city so that as they built this tower that reached, they believe, up into the heavens, that it would be seen by everyone in the city anywhere, anytime. They could look up and they would see the tower. And it, it was elevated to the point that was, it, it didn't reach the heavens, but it was high enough to where it looked like it reached the heavens. But the, the reference here isn't just to the altitude or the magnitude of this tower. It is symbolic of a religion that is what we call today astronomy. And the Bible says that astronomy is satanic. It is demonic. And it helps us understand that what they were doing, they were not only disobeying and defying God, but they were creating a religion of man because that is where Satanism and Satan actually originate. It is the study, it is the worship of man above God. Uh, watching the, the news here this week about this new statue that's coming out in Detroit in the Satanist church. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but if you go on the website and you take a look at this 
satanic church. It is a church that worships man, that deifies man, that claims to have no sovereignty, no one sovereign, no one Lord, no one over man, but man himself. And that is the ultimate satanic deception. And I believe that is what's going on with these people. They have so distanced themselves from God that they believe that they themselves deserve worship and glory and praise. But notice this shameful reputation that they're building because it says in the text that they want to make a name for themselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. They're not interested in bringing honor and glory to God. They want a name for themselves. They want to be a household name among everyone of the world. They want to be renowned. They want to be known. And if ever that they are mentioned, automatically all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the fame goes to them, but notice they're building on a shaky confidence because they believe that what they have built is going to keep them from being dispersed. In their defiance, they believe that they have been able to, you know, sort of hedge themselves in now so that, that, that they'll never be dispersed. We, we have managed now to so defy God that no one or nothing can disperse us. You know, how, how foolish is that to believe that they can do what they want, when they want, the way they want without God intervening? That's the foolishness of man. As we elevate ourselves to a lofty position to glorify and deify ourselves, claiming to have no authority, no matter what we claim, no matter what we do, there is a higher authority, and his name is Jehovah God. And we are not sovereign. He is sovereign. He is Lord. We don't dictate and determine our future in the sense that we control our lives and our God does. And as sovereign God, he is about to show them how foolish their effort is. For we learn, number four, that not only do we learn from a flippant leader of faithless people a foolish effort, but we also then learn from a final inspection. There is a final inspection that takes place after they have concluded their construction, after they have come to the place that, that they've reached this place where, you know, they're feeling pretty good about what they've done. I'm not sure the, the plan of the city or the construction of the city is completely done because we're going to learn in a minute that they are, they're going to abandon their plans to, to do more. But they've, they've gotten to a point where they've kind of settled in and, and God comes to inspect. It's, it's time for reckoning of, the, of these people and what they've done in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. It doesn't mean that God came physically down like he's done in other times or he will do later on in the book of Genesis. But he is coming down in a sense, it is a metaphorical statement here, in that God is surveying. He is inspecting. He is examining what man has created. Feeling pretty good about themselves. Look what we've done. Patting themselves on the back. Hurrah, hurrah for us. And then God says, well, let me, let me put it through the fire. Let me, let me inspect what you're doing. Let me examine what you're bragging about. And notice what God speaks from the throne. And the Lord said in verse 6, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. There's a problem here in this unity 
they disobey God. And the potential possibility is their corruption is going to become greater than what it currently is. God realized and recognized that if he doesn't intervene, man's corruption is going to become so great that it will revert back to before the flood, if it hasn't already. And their corruption will then increase. And so God summons the heavens when he says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Here's the judgment. He confuses their language. You ever been in a foreign country and weren't able to communicate? How awkward and how odd that is, and you're looking for somebody who can translate, or you're looking for somebody who can speak your language so you can know, you know, how, how to navigate. And so if you can imagine this mega city and this huge kingdom that's been built by these people under the leadership of Nimrod, all of a sudden there's confusion, there's, there's this, everybody starts speaking a different language and nobody understands each other. And so as a result of that, what happens is you see that, that God corrects then the rebellion. He accomplishes his will once and for all. And these, 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 this final inspection has brought about this judgment upon God which has caused the end result to scatter the people. And notice what it says, this fateful outcome, number four, as we learn from it, verse eight. So the Lord dispensed, dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language and all of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Jehovah God, sovereign God, finally comes in in this fateful outcome, and we see the consequences of what takes place. We see that the Lord scatters the people. They can't communicate, and so they scatter and as a result of the scattering, we realize and recognize that they stopped the construction of the city. They stopped what they were doing. They stopped the false worship. And the end result then is it serves the purpose of God and that he brings the people back into submission. And the end result is they now serve as an example to us today of what happens when we rebel against God, reject his ways and his will, and deify ourselves to glorify ourselves and do what we choose to do rather than what God has told us to do or asked us to do or commanded that we do. So let's look at the five life lessons very quickly. Number one, I need to foster a submissive heart. It's important that we foster a submissive heart. Nimrod was anything but submissive. His name itself describes him as a rebel. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a rebel. Anybody know that? You know what? You're kind of a rebel too. We're, we're born rebellious. We're born depraved. We're born sinners. And the very law that tells me I'm a sinner, it says, Paul says in Romans, propels me or leads me into greater sin because when God says don't, I want to do. Aren't you like that? Don't step on the grass. Oh, yeah? Well, what's grass made for? I'm going to step on it. Right? Come on. 
I mean, we're Midwesterners, right? We don't like to be told. Do we? No. And so here we see that submissiveness is not something that comes easily for us. Even though we're Christ's followers, and even we know that rebellion has a consequence, we still sometimes rebel and resist and reject, and we do our own thing and go our own way. And his thoughts are not always our thoughts, and our ways are not always his way. And so we must, on a day-to-day basis, examine ourselves and foster a submissive heart, because if we don't, the end result or the consequences that will result in our lives will not only affect us personally, but it will affect and impact our family, it will impact and affect our children, and it will affect and impact our grandchildren, and it can have effect and impact on even the church. And we must foster a submissive heart. Secondly, we need to follow God alone. And there are going to be times when, like in this day that we have talked about, where the masses and the movement of the crowd and the culture and the society and even the government is going to go one way. And in spite of the way that they're trying to force us to go, we must, we must stand on the promises, on the word of God and say, nope. Not bending, not compromising, not moving, not going, not changing, not thinking that way, but believing and trusting in God and to dare to stand alone. I believe the day's coming, you're going to have to stand alone. And we need to follow God and God alone. Number three, we need to fight pride's influence. I think one of the things that motivated Nimrod and the people was was a pride that caused them to rebel and reject God and to elevate themselves, to deify themselves, man over God. And pride is something I think all of us battle. And pride's influence is ugly, and it causes us to have poor judgment, and, it, and, and in that bad judgment, it reflects bad decisions and bad actions that result in consequences. Don't be proud to the point where it robs you of your honesty and humility and your dependence upon God. Number four, we need to foresee accountability for one of these days. Like this people that we've studied this morning. In Genesis chapter 11, there was an accountability before God. God saw and God judged. One of these days, the trumpet of God is going to blow, and the dead in Christ will rise, and those of us who remain will be caught up together in the clouds, and we'll be forever with the Lord. But in that forever with the Lord, before we get to the forever, there'll be a judgment day. And you individually will stand before the Lord yourself, all by yourself, and give an account of your life before him. And will you, like the Apostle Paul said, I have fought a good fight, I have run a good race, I have finished my course. Will you hear a well done, thou good and faithful servant? Or will there be disappointment because of poor judgment, wrong actions, and consequences? Don't fool yourself. God is a judge who will judge even his own people. For judgment begins in the house of God. And all of us 
saved and unsaved alike will stand accountable before God. And accountability day will come for each and every one of us. And I'm convinced that that should play into our judgment, into our decisions, into our actions, so that we can avoid the consequence of standing before God giving account for carnal, fleshly, selfish, sinful, egotistical, independent, self-righteous actions based upon poor judgments. Then lastly, I think we need to forsake the temporary for the eternal. You know, these people spent all their time on the temporary and not a single second on what's eternal. I don't know about you, but you've heard this before. I've never seen a hearse attached to a U-Haul. Have you ever seen a hearse in a funeral? There's a U-Haul attached to the hearse, and they're taking their stuff with them on the way to the grave. Have you ever seen that? Why is that? Because you leave everything here. How much of this world's stuff are you going to take with you in heaven? And all the time we spend accumulating and acquiring and maintaining and, and pursuing the, the things that are temporary, and, and we spend very little of our time and our effort and our energy in pursuing the things that are really, really important. And we need to have a, a, a time in which we reflect upon our value system and see that this world's temporary stuff really has absolutely no value. True, it may make your life comfortable for a little bit here on this earth. Well, I don't know about you. I, uh, <laughs> I remember one time we got a swing set for our children, and it was really a pricey little thing. And after we got it up, you know, kind of follow somewhat the instructions. You try to put it together without the instructions, and then, then you put it together with the instructions. And then there's a phrase at the bottom you know, after you finally think you get it up, it says, tighten bolts weakly. And you're thinking, they're crazy. Because this thing that I spent all this, you know, it just constantly requires effort and attention, you know, <laughs> to not only build up, to prop up, and to maintain it. And yet it's temporary. We left that house and moved to another house, and our kids grew up, and they're not on it anymore. I'm not saying those things aren't things that we should invest in for our children. Don't, don't misread what I'm saying. But how much of our time do we spend on the temporary rather than on the eternal? I mean, we're building lives. We're building marriages. We're building families. We're building the church of Jesus Christ. So we must focus on the eternal rather than the temporary if we hope to one day stand accountable to God and answer for the lives that we live and the resources we are entrusted with so that we might glorify him. So I ask you as we close, there are two comes in this text. Actually, there's three. There's two that man extends to man, and there's one that God extends to the heavens to come. Jesus said, come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His invitation today is for us to come to him. The prodigal 
son didn't come to him until after he had rebelled and rejected God. But when he finally came to the Lord, he found his father, he found the rest and the forgiveness that he needed. Have you rebelled? Have you exercised poor judgment and taken some actions that were actually mistakes and the end result were consequences? Isn't it great to know that we have a, a father who is gracious, who is loving, who is merciful and who is kind, who says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you made mistakes? Have you made mistakes? Have you exercised poor judgment, taken wrong actions, resulted in consequences because your value system wasn't the way it should be or your heart was rebellious, your choices were selfish? We can come to him today and say, you know what, Lord? I made a mistake. In honesty, I bring this mistake, lay it at your feet. And humility ask you to forgive me and to cleanse me and to restore me. For like the psalmist prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He is a gracious God and invites us to come. And as we come, we find rest, forgiveness, peace, mercy, and grace that is more than sufficient to cover our mistake and to wipe the slate clean and give us a fresh start. But you know, you can't have a fresh start without first coming to know Christ. But there was a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to be saved? He said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And the Bible said he couldn't do that because he had great wealth and he walked away. Come unto me, take up my cross and follow me. Jesus may be inviting you today to come to him, to take up the cross and to follow him. Whatever he's inviting you to do, as he says, come, will you come? I wish that we were puppets on the string in which he just said, come, and he reeled us in. We had no will of our own. Wouldn't that be great? But he made us in his image. He made us with the freedom to choose. And the choice today is ours as we leave this place today, to come unto him and to find the rest that we desperately need. And you may leave this morning not coming to him, rebelling against him, but like, like he did here today, I'm going to pray that he hone in, your, hone in on your life and, 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 and build hedges around your life that will force you, that will force you into a life of obedience. Because there are times when he does that to his children. And I don't know about you, but for me, I'm grateful he does that. But it's a lot less painful. <laughs> it's a lot less painful if you say yes and willingly go. Then you say no and he experiences discipline and eventually get there ultimately where he wants you to be. So the choice is ours to come and to find rest. Let's pray.
to do great work it just begins to rise among us several years ago the father of these two young ladies came to that point in his life where he experienced Christ as his personal Savior and Lord and from that time he's been seeking to lead his family to do the same and this morning we get to come and celebrate two young ladies baptisms as they declare their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if you are part of Michael and Liliana's family life group, friends, would you stand this morning if you've come to celebrate with them this morning? This is my friend, Michael. And Michael, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart? Yeah. And he's your savior and your boss? Yes, all right. Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. And this is big sister Liliana. Liliana, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life.